Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwolatsky. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today we're in conversation with Nomso Faith Kana. Hi Nomso. Hi everyone. And my co-host as always is Karen Gammy. Hi Karen. Hi Barry. Hi Nomso. Super excited to be chatting to you today. So let me start by saying a little bit about Nomso. Um, I've been reading a lot about you Nomso in the past few weeks. And when the Mail and Guardian profiled you in their powerful women feature, they um, asked you what were your proudest moments. And you responded by saying that your proudest moments were achieving your degrees, um, defeating cancer at the age of 23, and being appointed as a governor of the Nuclear Energy Foundation and Agency. And I would be proud of those achievements too. Sanomso is a nuclear scientist and she's founder of two startups. These are called Sun and Shield 84 Technologies, which manufactures fiber optic cable and Blaze Away South Africa, which is a business strategy consulting firm. She was also invited to participate as a commissioner on President Ramaphosa's commission on the fourth industrial revolution or 4IR. And interestingly, the final report of this commission has been gazetted in the um, Government Gazette in October 2020. Now the list of Nomso's achievements are as long as your arm. And uh, <laughs> reading them, the one thing that really uh, strikes me is she's, the, if, if the world is broken up into two kinds of people, uh, the kind of person who who takes the easy route and the kind of person who takes the hard route, she's definitely the one who always follows the hard route. So she uh, didn't just go and do some odd degree, she chose to do nuclear physics. She didn't just choose to have a startup that did something boring, but she chose to manufacture fiber optic cable. So she's obviously one of those hard route people. And we'll really explore this as we go. In all that Nomsa has done, uh, she's worked hard to encourage young Africans, particularly women, to become involved in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths. And it's a, such a pleasure to have you, Nomsa, um, joining this optimizing podcast. So, um, Nomsa, our metaphor in these podcasts is life as a relay race. And I'm curious to know, when you were growing up and still at school, um, who were your heroes and your role models? Oh, thank you so much, Prof. Berry, and thanks, Karen, um, for being part of this conversation so that I'm not intimidated that much. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know, growing up, um, typical rural girl um, brought up by two parents who our teachers were very strict, uh, but you know, in in the family, those were my first uh, role models, and and also you know the people surrounding the family, because those were the people that would actually um, you know showcase and demonstrate to you that in order to achieve something, you have to get up and do it. At first, learn about it and then do it afterwards. So those are sort of my role models around that. Well, I can't say much about my chores because I would always be reminded about them. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> And it's kind of interesting to say that you grew up in a rural area and your parents were teachers. And 
And uh, two of the people that we have had in this podcast season before, um, Amchilitsi Marwala and Mtetanyati, um, as well grew up in rural areas and had teachers as parents. So I'm beginning to detect a pattern there. I think <laughs> yeah. it helps to have parents who are teachers. Absolutely. Um, so I'm sorry, I must just say that like, it's such a pleasure to be, to be talking to you. And when I was sort of like researching, uh, or, or preparing for this podcast, um, I came across your Mail and Guardian article and like, I had read it a, a few months earlier and then I like saw your face and I obviously like put the links together and I was like, oh my goodness, it's this person who is so deeply impressive and just, Wow. And so I was fangirling a little bit before this podcast. <laughs> so it really is super exciting to be chatting to you. Um, but in the, the article, you mentioned that, you know, uh, getting your degrees was one of your most proudest moments. Uh, so, so where exactly did you study and what did you study? Awesome. Thanks, Karen. Um, so I studied, um, obviously, my high school was in the Eastern Cape and my, my varsity degrees, I then studied at University of Forte in the Eastern Cape. Um, I studied my first degree. I mean, I had three majors, computer science, chemistry, and physics, because I just couldn't choose between Oof. the two. And and really that choice, uh, you know, has really made an impact in my life right now. Um, so my first degrees, yeah. I did them at University of Forte and, and also my honors, I did them at the University of Forte. And then the Eastern Cape, I decided to go inland, applied at Wurz to do my master's in chemistry. And unfortunately, at those times, I then became sick and I decided to sort of put that on hold um, and just focus on my health. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so uh, in the in the article, you mentioned one of your other proudest moments was beating cancer at the tender age of 23. Um, I mean, I'm, I recently turned 26. And when I think of myself at 23, I'm, I just think like, oh, my goodness, Karen, you were such a baby. So that's like, that's a really, really big deal. Um, and that must have been such a major turning point in your life. Do you do you sort of mind sharing um, sort of what that experience was like for you? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, definitely. So I'm quite open um, about that experience. And, mm. um, you know, whenever I have talks with um, young girls and young boys and, and trying to give them, you know, nuggets about life and how to handle major changes in your life and also how to really, you know, leap over them and, and really continue, I always of that story and i think beating cancer at that time really has given me that um that you know that that urge to speak about overcoming in life and also in 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 the podium to speak about these things so the experience i think for me it was i thought i was just sick like any other i thought maybe this is just like flu but you know, mm. it, it was quite devastating for my family yeah. because I was up here alone in Johannesburg and, and and everyone is back in the Eastern Cape. So every time I would sort of go for for treatment, they would ask, Are you okay? Um yeah. we do something. But I had such a great circle of friends and, and friends that have become family to me while mm. I was doing. And but for my recovery, obviously, I then had to go home. But throughout all the treatment, um, it was quite something very hard for my family. But, you know, mm. through my strength and my attitude, because I thought like, you know, this is just like flu. And this would actually mm. make my mom cry because <laughs> I'm so yeah. relaxed about it. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. that, that whole um, experience, it really taught us to look after our health and also be, mm. be vigilant when you don't feel something right. And, yep. and, and also, um, you know, that strength also of overcoming. And I must say it's been almost 10 years now and yeah. cancer free. Yay. Oh. That is such a joy to hear. And honestly, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're still with us and still doing really cool things. So honestly, shout out to you. Yeah, and just to, to, to kind of say, and I mean, your point about uh, looking after one's health and celebrating one's health is uh, very apt uh, today in terms of we are sitting in the middle of a terrible pandemic Absolutely. and people are dealing with health issues. 
and I think that uh, you know your inspiration to people to to not take their health for granted and to really celebrate being healthy and that's wonderful. So I'm really also very excited uh, to know that you got through it and you are now with us and doing such amazing things. Um, I listened to uh, to a podcast someone else did. There are other people doing podcasts. And a person <laughs> uh, did a podcast with you in uh, which you talked about your first job and you were working in a laboratory and you referred to yourself as a lab rat. And I love that. <laughs> but uh, you, but uh, you seem from the way you spoke about it to quite enjoy that work. Um, can you talk about what kind of work you were doing in the lab and what was your sort of lab rat existence like? <laughs> oh man, how you say it, Prof, it's funny. <laughs> but hmm. so immediately after I recovered um, from my cancerous experience, I, I, a friend of mine spoke to me about this opportunity to be trained as a medical biologist scientist in which um, there's quite a few in the country and they are these hidden germs of, of scientists that work closely in the medical sector and just infusing medical biology with, with medical sciences. Um, then um, started training under the National Health Laboratory Services and um, in those years, about two years of training. So you do this in conjunction with the university and we were working with the University of Cape Town. So I used to work in analyzing, um, you know, a PAH um, or, or, or other toxic substances that workers are exposed to in the mm. workplace, especially in mining sometimes, mm. as well as, um, you know, communicable disease. I was working specifically on polyaromatic hydrocarbons and analyzing them in all body fluids and, 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 and also worked on asbestos sometimes and worked on, um, on other materials that workers use in the mining. So we would do that whole occupational analysis and produce research out of that. But, you know, it will be commercial research where now the lab is able to really ensure that information is dissected into the industry and there are standards and norms that are done to protect people that are working in such um, areas. So that was the, the lab red work that we used to do. Obviously, you know, scientists, they, you start to experiment and you start to learn and I got involved um, with the um, NICD at that time because we were scientists at the NHLS it's all under the same umbrella and they used to do analysis on N1H1 that was back in 2009 and 2010 2008 2009 and 2010 so I, I was involved in that you know the excitement of of really analyzing something similar as as COVID right now and but you know mm. with the group that we were working with we curbed um, the spread and we managed to ensure that the local transmission does not move that much and we were so grateful when there was a vaccination that um, was released for N1H1 which is all mm. groups in the swine flu category so it, that's the elaborate work I <laughs> used to do and it was so exciting because you start to live in the lab and you start to look like those crazy scientists we see in movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can picture you with the white coats and thick glasses and yep. wild hair. So <laughs> cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> but and it it kind of strikes me in sort of reading about you and hearing about what you've done that uh, your career seemed to be on on quite a good and a predictable path. So, uh, you know, you were there, you could, there was obviously room for promotion and further study, and the lab rat could have turned into a prominent scientist, and uh, you've, got a, you've uh, now got a degree, and you're working in the lab, and you're building your career. And then you did something quite out of the conventional, and that's what I find interesting about you. You didn't take the easy route of just building a career from then on and 
cruising along and uh, you know making a life with in that world but you decided to do one of the hardest things that I know of and that's to become an entrepreneur mm -hmm. and it wasn't uh, just uh, doing what some people do when they say I'm going to be an entrepreneur and they decide to build an app or something easy <laughs> you decided to manufacture in South Africa fiber optic cable now that was re really a brave move and can you um, tell us how you came to that sort of career changing step how you 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 were attracted to entre entrepreneurship and why you chose that particular way of becoming an entrepreneur which i'm sure hasn't been easy at all yeah um, so gosh what a journey you know sometimes i would think uh you know entrepreneurs are just a, a another crazy breed of human beings mm -hmm. um i then when i left now the medical biology sciences i was poached into a position at um, nexa which is the nuclear corporation of south africa um i started working um just being in the radio isotopes laboratory, um, analyzing and just approving some of the isotopes that South Africa sells even nowadays to the rest of the world. But the entrepreneurship journey started while I was in those labs where I then started um, having issues with connectivity. Um, you know, you would be in, in one lab and the other one is like two kilometers away, so you have to drive all the way. So I used to think, why can't I just end these results and send them over? Um, but you know, the yeah. campus had, um, you know, connectivity, cable theft issues, and South Africa back in those times, I mean, this was like in to 2011, South Africa back in those times, we were heavily invested in, in copper cables for our means of, of connectivity and, and mm -hmm. internet transmission. Um, I decided, why are we using this? Because, you know, the, it would be stolen and, and they would say, you know what, there's nothing we can do about it. So I just mm -hmm. started researching about what are the better and the best um, uh, mediums for light transmission for data in order for us to have fast internet. And then I discovered um, 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 fiber optic cables and, and also how they are made, you know, from sand to a pure clean glass. And I started studying about the discoveries of conning in the USA. And, and I, I started thinking then why as the country are we not doing this? I started working towards researching about that, learning about the full value chain of this sector and, and, and just applying my mind on what will happen if we started to produce our own. And even today, I mean, we are South Africa, we, we import these things and, and importing these things, you know, you also are, are, are in the deficit of the skills that make products. So I decided, let me do this. Let me approach um, investment funds and see on how I can erupt a, a, a fiber optic cable. And I must say, Prof, we have not started. For now, we're still distributing mm -hmm. and, and some of our um, manufacturing, it's still happening overseas. We're not manufacturing yet in the country because we're still raising funds for this. And, and so in my work, then I decided while we are building up to raise and erupt a fiber optic plant that will produce these cables so that we can have seamless connectivity. That in the meantime, let us distribute. Let me learn about the global markets. Let me mm -hmm. see on how we can have an inclusion, a, a partnership with these markets and we can have our own because there is so much um, deficit in the country regarding um, cabling that is used for this last mile and on why we have slow speeds and also why we're still relying on copper and, and, and also other wireless means. So the currently, currently the company is distributing. We are opening the plant next year in East London to manufacture 
we're not manufacturing yet, but we are distributing the cables. And this whole entrepreneurship journey came about when now I got tired of moving between two kilometers, transferring uh, manually results that need to be sent to our clients while working in the lab. And it was such an accident thing because I thought, I mean, I am busy in the lab trying to save people. There should be someone who's doing this. And then I started, <laughs> started researching about it, but I found an opportunity and I thought, let me exploit it. And I believe that's entrepreneurship, finding that challenge, finding that opportunity and starting to exploit that. Could I, could I just ask, and it's a sort of continuation of what you're saying, but uh, what are your thoughts about the South African and the African entrepreneurship scene? What are the challenges that face local entrepreneurs and particularly local women entrepreneurs? How difficult is it um, uh, to be an African entrepreneur and an African woman entrepreneur? Yeah, I, that's that's where now we have a, you know, the, the conundrum of challenges, especially for females. Um, so the whole idea that a female must have domestic role. It's really mm. uh, making a lot of people confused. Now, when a female has a business and they need assistance or they need to be accelerated. So currently in the country, we have a lot of initiatives for women empowerment, but the output at most times, it's very minimal. And it's because for women, there's a lot to balance. Um, they still have to, you know, attain that role, but at the same time, they still need to run their companies. And that's where now, you, as a woman, you need to find management of time and resources in doing both, um, 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 attaining both roles um, as, as you are expected in, in society and sometimes in, 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 in the business sector. And entrepreneurship in, in South Africa in particular, I believe, Prof, it is still in the premature uh, phase. Mm -hmm. And the ecosystem for now, it is not matured enough to actually allow us to build unicorn businesses. There is so um, um, such a, a low, um, you know, I don't want to call it assistance, but there is such a low confidence when it comes to allowing people that are innovative to have access to markets and also to be funded. Most of these financial institutions, when you have something as you know that's breaking and disrupting a market, they would think this is a high risk. No one else is doing it in the country. And if it's not done, how can we compare it? How can we do a market comparison so that we would get the return of our investment? So though those issues, um, low confidence in, in funding and also access to market are really making the ecosystem to grow at a very low rate. And this is my opinion. Hence, I even decided, Prof, to jump in. I applied to be part of the CEDA board, Small Enterprise mm. Agency, so that I can yes. be a bridge between reality and also policy making to really showcase that, you know what, this is what people need. And this is how you as government can come in and ask private sector to come in and, and really and allow entrepreneurs to grow because these are the people that are going to build the ecosystem. We will not have big corporations that will hire right now. It's entrepreneurs that are hiring. I mean, in my business, I, I have offices in Namibia, in, in, in Zimbabwe and in, in SA, and you would have people, I would have people that are working part-time, full-time, and others are working part-time. And when you look at these skills, it's people that um, some have studied social work, um, but 
I've given them an opportunity to study um, digital um, literacy and, and get some digital skills. And now they are able to sort of, um, you know, fuse those two together and work for an IT company. So, but you will not find that in big corporations. Big corporations, mm. they, if you've studied marketing, they expect you to be in the marketing unit. And they, yeah. there's, there's no room for them to actually allow people to fuse in skills and 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 allow them to apply them in the workplace so that that that's how i view the whole ecosystem it's still premature it still needs players to ensure it it, it grows and allows more players and allows more people to be part of it so that we can have um a very successful ecosystem yeah yeah so one of my kind of long-standing vocational interests is is sort of this intersection of like ethics and and AI and sort of like the, the the frameworks the ethical frameworks that we should be using in AI because currently you know you can just end up automating a lot of systemic biases and then and then hurting people you know down the road and so I think it is something as like tech practitioners we need to really be be well aware of is the, the societal impacts that technology has um, and so I know that you are quite well known for your work with with like women in Africa so both South Africa and obviously in other African countries particularly promoting you know STEM and I'm curious to understand sort of what that journey has been like for you amazing question Karen and and I really would like you to be part of this an alliance I'm part of alliance for AI and oh my goodness sign me up yes Yeah, so it's 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 really about those things. And I believe, I know you would agree with me on this, to build a successful AI model, machine learning model, deep learning model, you need to ensure that um, um, annotation and also mm-hmm. the, the, the conceptualization and contextualization of it, it is done mm. for the pe- it is done by the people that are going to use that model exactly for so, us by us that's exactly. how it should be done yeah yep. so it we can't adopt um european ai model Mm-mm. and western and asian and eastern i mean and we have mm. we have to get together as africans and start to build our own and currently the status of women in africa Unfortunately, COVID-19 pandemic has really moved us to be 10 years. It, it has sort of shifted um, the, the development we have been working towards and has started about 10 years from it. When, when the COVID pandemic started, so I'm going to use this and, and respond to that. When it started, women had to go back home and, and work from home and and that mind shift now that this person is a has to assume their domestic role it came and and most of the girls that we look after they're coming back pregnant and you're thinking what happened so the status of women in africa currently it is at a, a sad state because um, our efforts in the past 10 years in accelerating their development have sort of shifted a bit, a bit back. And, and now we have to work extra hard to make them realize that, you know, they can still be part of the economy and participate in it. And, and, and it, it, it involves now twice the efforts of ensuring that women um, are involved in decision making, women are involved in in the post-COVID uh, economic planning and all those things, because um, it's 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 been really um, such a, a bad shift currently. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And I think even that, that division of labor and, and sort of domestic chores are, are automatically shifted towards women. And it's like, you know, in theory, that's fine, except that is uncompensated labor. So it really just like women just lose out at the end of the day. And it's, it's super, super devastating. Um, so yeah, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Um, maybe just to, yeah, to ask a very much still in line with sort of like, your entrepreneurial pursuits, but um, 
obviously like coming across like all this literature about you, it's very clear that you're super brave and super strategic. And I wanted to know kind of like if you have a strategy that you implement when you try and seek out opportunities, um, or do you just kind of happen to grab whatever comes your way and, and make it into something great? Oh, amazing question. Once again, Two points for you, zero points for Prof. Barry. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, great question. So one of the things I, I had to, while I was um, going through my treatments during the cancer period, I had to really sit down with myself and ask myself that, what is it that I want to do with what I have? And I've always been passionate about community development and and also um, you know rural development in the context on on how do you industrialize an area that is underserved and is just hopeless and this really goes back to my upbringing growing up in rural areas where you don't have sanitation um, infrastructure or, or water but all those things came through um, later on but I've always that 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 has set with me and while I was really reflecting I thought how do I use science um, to really make an impact Time. I mean, I have honors degree in pure and applied chemistry and computer science. I decided that um, so my next move, it has to be something that is practical. It is real time. It is seen. It impacts a person right there. Hence, I went into medical biology sciences and then I jumped into nuclear. And from nuclear, then I went into connectivity. And I sort of Right now, when I think about these choices, I, I think, well, that, that was quite clever. And I'm sorry, and I would pet myself. Mm. <laughs> but do it. <laughs> but in I all would of also. That, yeah. <laughs> but in all of that, I would think you have to integrate and fuse what you're learning to produce one thing. And I, I then integrated the sciences, the pure and applied sciences, chemistry and physics, and then I had to put in computer science in that. And now I'm in executive levels where that has to com has to translate commercially and make revenues out of that. So I think that has been my strategy. How do you apply science and how do you commercially make it something that can generate revenues for you? And it's it's uh, kind of and we we've um, talked about this relay race metaphor, and I think if I was looking out for the batons that you might pass on, I think uh, what you've just been talking about is um, really such a good lesson for people. It's to be strategic, to have a plan, and to not just let life happen and bumble along, but to 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 work to a plan. And I think that you, that what you've just uh, described is doing that. So in my mind, that's great advice you've given people listening to this. We, we talked about your uh, role models and heroes when you were growing up. And, uh, you know, I think people are inspired by others or mentored by others. And at this point in your life, could you speak about your role models or people who inspire you? Uh, whether they're people who mentor you and help you. Have you got people in your life who kind of inspire, help, and direct you? Oh, most definitely, Prof. Most definitely. Um, I have a long list, and I think let's prepare for the next hour to talk about that. <laughs> let's hear them. <laughs> uh, but on top of the list, I mentioned my parents. But right now, yes. people that are really doing it for me, um, the likes of the, the executive director of UN Women, Pumzile Nguga, mm. and, and also... Um, one of the ladies that are in the business space, Ipeleng Mkari, and there's, there's a woman who is currently um, running her startup. She was born in Botswana and, and came to SA and studied it at, at UCT, um, um, Rapelang Rabana. And and I also have Prof Chilitz Marana. I mean, in the commission, Ooh, yes. him and I, we used to disagree a lot, but he's one of the guys that I really look up to. 
and and lastly uh -huh. there is um a woman who runs a, a a charity shelter home for teenagers abandoned children and this is some of the things that is very close to my heart and you know she's in her uh, 50s right now and she never had a child and and um she um you know takes care of of these of of these women and and well it's teenagers mostly mm. uh, and and they are and they also run a homeless shelter um it's called litubalami dinaledi house shelter so it's it's those people that i believe that you know they they are playing a huge role in society in rehabilitating people in in being role models in showing people um you know a path a direction in attaining something and these are people that you know they go um against all odds to ensure that they achieve something and it's not only for them it's for the people that look up to them so it's it's interesting that you you mentioned uh, Prof Chaliti Marwala because we we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and I know that you are a commissioner on the presidential commission of the 4IR sector and when we interviewed him he sort of gave us um a really good summary and idea of the work that the commission is doing as a whole but uh, from your end what is the specific focus um of developing an interest in 4IR strategy for for South Africa yeah, so it, the commission, it, it's a team of about 33. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we we devised when we sat down and say, what should be the outcome of this commission? Because there can't be any other, any other commission. And we said that whatever, however we define 4IR, the most, um, you know, the most core thing is that it must be human-centric and it must ensure that South Africa participate in the economy globally. And we mm. also, we, we go back to being a competitive country where we ensure that we generate employment and also we, we assist the growth of Africa at the same time. Mm. So those are one of the things that I, I really nodded when we were talking and discussing the ultimate outcome of the commission. But I must say that, you know, the, the, the 4IR technologies, they are so interdependent. You know, these technologies like robotics, AI, IoT, um, you know, in order for them to thrive, 4IR needs an ecosystem of technical infrastructure like fiber, the work that I'm doing, a system of skills development, local ICT support, as well as cyber governance and regulatory frameworks. I mean, we need yeah. to regulate AI. We need to ensure that um, the OTTs that are operating in the country, they, 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 they also a part of this ecosystem that builds um, the country. They can't just take away our data and the, the revenues that come out of that data and just, um, um, you know, enjoy them by themselves. Um, so mm. that, I think to me, that's one of the, the key things that I wanted to, to, to be reflected in the commission and the outcome, it must really yeah. showcase that. 100%. Yeah, and I think it's, and I, I, it's uh, very visible in uh, what I've read because I've now read the report and I can see what you're saying, that integration. Um, um, in fact, one of the things, obviously, in, the, in our recent, in, in this year, in 2020, which we can't ignore, has been the COVID-19 pandemic. And what it has done, really, it's, uh, well, amongst many other things, it's brought into focus the digital divide. So we, we can see more clearly those that have and those that don't have, uh, connectivity. And it, yes. it creates this very clear picture of the inequality in our society. If you look at kids at school and students at university and those who've got good connections at home and can carry on studying and carrying on learning, and those that don't, who just lost, who lost the year. And um, your startup, um, which is called um, um, Sun and Shield 84 Tech, 
um, and it, it aims to become an important part of this local broadband ecosystem. And I think of all the things that we have to do going forward into this new normal, connectivity for me is the absolute bottom line. So um, could you maybe talk a bit about how we should go about reducing and eliminating the digital divide in South Africa and Africa? What should we do? Awesome. Um, and I had a, a, a fireside discussion with one of my role models regarding that very same issue, Prof, um, mm. the executive director of the UN Women. And I, I, I was sort of asking her questions on, we have seen right now that, you know, this pandemic has accelerated digital adoption, digital transformation, and, and, and digitization at, at the bottom line. But now, one of the things it has shown us is, you know, that glaring picture that there is a wide bridge between those that have it and those that do not have. And in, 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 in retrospect, um, my company looks into ensuring that we actually um, fit and ensure that bridge does not exist anymore. And mm. we do this by ensuring that number one, let's look at the infrastructure. How do we connect? And, and so how do we get the materials to connect? And that's something I believe it has been um, put aside when it comes to investment in the infrastructure of the country. And that being said, Prof, Sun and Shield right now, we have done in a very extensive research on, on gathering data on how many um, townships we have in the country, how many people are in those townships, how many rural areas are in the country, how many underserved villages, you know, those ones that are very raw, that are in the country where there are people. And how do we ensure we have connectivity for them? How do we ensure we do fiber to the township, fiber to the rural and fiber to the village so that everyone is on the same level of the playing field and especially for students. And, and we've done such a huge research and to actually find that um, uh, close to 14.5 uh, million homes we have to connect as the startup to say we are mm. doing fiber to the home in Alex, in Soweto, in Danzani back at home, or in Motherwell, in, in Port Elizabeth. And this will ensure that people now have the privilege of having speeds of more than 10 megabytes per second. And this ensures that they can connect all their devices at home and participate in the 4IR, and they can connect um, to ensure that they can receive telemedicine applications, e-learning, and the likes. So it's quite important, I believe, now that for entrepreneurs in this sector to really be in the forefront of ensuring that everyone connects because we see now the tool to bridge that that wide um, um, gap between between us and 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 um one of the interesting things we have seen prof in which it broke my heart was that while doing that research and looking at schools public schools and private schools we actually saw um, a community a neglected community of those that are physically disabled and could mm. be any um could be any um elements in that um in that in those challenging physical disabled um, um communities so we we thought that um we should find a way for them to have specific applications um for example digital sound in in some of the in some of the applications we use online because it's not catered for them so part of our work in the company we do research in finding those applications in doing translation and we also found an opportunity karen to actually annotate some machine learning data for people that um partially um here and and mm -hmm. so um for for ai bots audible AI bots to translate from 
is it closer to English or from English to Africans and just do that oh, um, translation amazing. and and we're working with a lot of people um, uh, teachers actually we, we we are starting to to look at linguistics um, and and also we're starting to look at teachers in primary and high school that are teaching those subjects because I believe they have the core knowledge when it comes to translation the semantics and 100%. so that whole language um, semantics because I also believe these OTTs that have these translation apps um, they are not doing a very good job. You'll find there's an office not in Silicon Valley that is translating Isizulu to English and it's all a white yep. male um, team yep. and it's not doing <laughs> a good job. I'm about to yep. end now, Prof, so I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's so, and I can hear the passion. And I, um, I just wanted to ask one question, and it's it's a controversial thing because uh, people have said that, uh, you know, it'll never be economically viable to connect people in rural areas and uh, um, uh, people in townships to um, um, uh, to fibre. So uh, people sort of think of fibre as being something that's a sort of middle class way of connecting. And then um, the cellular networks are too expensive. So it, it kind of, the, this kind of gap in terms of people who live in far flung rural communities. And, um, and my belief, and I just want to hear what you think about this, is that in the 1990s, a, a miracle happened in South Africa when we connected a thousand households a day to the national electrical grid. So before, uh, the transition out of apartheid or during that period of transition, there was this mass electrification program that um, kind of brought us from about 30% of people having electricity at home to um, something close to 90% now. And um, it was uh, done in a very organized way. It was done economically. It was uh, done using the money Eskom had at the time. So it, it's possible, and I would love to see a, a mass connectivity program that would uh, do that. And and in your mind, would it be based on fiber, or would we look at other ways to connect that last mile or last quarter mile? Yeah, great question, Prof. And this is exactly our strategy in at Sun and Shield 84 Tech is that we are employing the very same strategy telecom had when they were putting up um, fixed line phones i mean in my village we had a fixed line phone and mm. who could we could call our neighbors and we could call people in other villages in which i think it's not an a mission impossible for people to have fiber at home in a rural area because it mm. has happened before hence in mm. We, we look for partners such as telecom and and also uh, partners um, that are in the satellite um, sector of connectivity and and those are companies for example that um, have ownership in geo stationary sat communication satellites and they can assist in in really getting into areas that we cannot get into but you know i think it's quite doable exactly that point um prof berry this yeah. is our strategy mm. that infrastructure exists and 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 it is it is obviously it's redundant right now because we are all mobile south africa is the most mobile nation we access our internet yeah. through our phones but i think we have an opportunity to really get people to connect and the stats tell us that um about 5% households um in 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 south africa are connected through fibers, households and businesses. So at, out of the 14.5 yeah, so... um, odd million um, households, 5% of that is connected through fiber. And we want, we are ambitious enough to say we want 100%. Don't wanna sound like a politician right now, but that's our plan. Well, you've definitely got my support in doing that. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, Karen, anything else from you? No, honestly, I've just been so energized by this conversation and, and I really would love to, to catch up with you on, on the work you're doing with AI in general, but this has been amazing. Um, could I just ask um, uh, one final question then, uh, Norm So, and that is, um, so if we come back to the relay race metaphor and what baton or batons, what advice or words of, of, of encouragement would you pass on to Karen and her generation of Africa's future female digital leaders? What would you say to them? Thank you, Prof, for that question. And it's such a great question because I was recently discussing the very same thing with a group of women um, that have been in leadership, both, both um, in business and politics. And, and I asked them, um, you know, something quite similar. And they gave me an advice and said that, number one, as, as, as a person, this is what you need to, to pass on to the next generation. And this is what I'm passing on to Karen is self-confidence and, and, you know, and, and be resolute in your own beliefs and working towards them. And lastly, it is being part of something that you, that is bigger than you. And I I think this is what I have done for myself is being part of things that are bigger than me and, and also work on myself to be always be assertive and confident. Yeah. That's so good. Thank you. And, uh, and um, I've been jotting down notes and I think that uh, some of your amazing uh, batons that you've uh, spoken about is uh, firstly to have a plan and um, secondly to have mentors and role models to have people in your life you can look up to and that you can engage with and that help you so uh, you know i think too many people try to do it alone and it's you've you've done amazing things but you've done it together with others and so it's been wonderful speaking to you thank you so much for joining our podcast. Thank you. And um, I really look forward to working with you in all sorts of ways in the future. And all strength to you. I know that you're going to go on to do even greater things in the future. Thank you, Norm. Thank you so much, Prof. Thank you so it's much. been a pleasure and it's such a privilege to talk to you as always. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowitz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowitz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.